The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. That show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The Everyday Wealth Radio Show and Podcast are produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Ms. Chatsky and Ms. O'Brien are not employees or clients of the firm. They receive fixed cash compensation for acting as hosts and related activities and therefore have an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see W www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everyday-wealth. The 2021 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm Ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory records, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2021 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines, ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien, and you are listening to Everyday Wealth. So a few weeks ago, we had Mark Sandy, chief economist for Moody's Analytics, on to talk about the housing market. The week after he was on, the Fed raised interest rates a 0.75%. And it's like the whole entire housing market just took a cold shower, like a light switch just flipped from bright Friday night lights to now a little sad little flickering <laughs> light bulb in the basement saying, no, don't come down here. Only bad things happen down here. I love real estate. So it actually pains me tremendously to say this, but you can feel the housing market shift, even if it's not in every single market. And not just the housing market. I mean, it's amazing to me how quickly we We've gone from headlines about the great resignation and how the workers have all the power to, oh, my gosh, people are starting to get nervous about leaving their jobs in particular industries or from consumers are spending like there's no tomorrow to consumers are all of a sudden not buying as many airline tickets as they were. It's been two weeks and I've never seen it move so fast, which makes it confusing. As many of you know, this show is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Each week, we're joined by wealth planners and specialists from EFE. They work with clients every single day, helping people weather uncertain times just like these. And this week is no different. We'll have Edelman Financial Engines Chief Investment Officer, Christopher Jones, joining us to talk about portfolio construction. And later in the show, Wealth Planner Brian Leslie will be returning. He is from Omaha, Nebraska. We'll be talking about some of the obstacles that get in the way of building wealth. But if you're feeling stressed out about your financial situation, and by the way, we don't blame you, (laughs) maybe the market is just putting a little bit of a crimp in your retirement, you can give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call at 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. Now, obviously, interest rates are playing a major role in any news story now. Yeah. So following the Fed move that you mentioned last week, where the Fed funds rate went up by three quarters of a percentage point, which by 
the way, has not happened for 28 years. There are now a lot of big names coming out from Elon Musk to the folks at Goldman Sachs and Citi warning of a recession that will hit sooner rather than later. And yeah, it, it is true. We are seeing some weakening of the economy, including layoffs at a number of the companies that soared during the pandemic. We've also seen the Fed minimize their total economic projections for the year. They now are saying that they expect the U.S. economy to grow by a little under 2 percent. That's compared to about the 3 percent that they were forecasting in March. But the question is, what is actually going to happen? And and this is the tightrope that the Federal Reserve is trying to walk. It seems right now like the economy, is much stronger than it was going into the Great Recession that was kicked off by the housing crisis. We've still got unemployment incredibly low at 3.6 percent. But the thing about a recession that you have to remember is that we're not going to know that we're in one until we've actually been in it for a while recessions look backwards. And eventually, we will be in one. We've had 45 recessions since the government started tracking these things in the 1850s. But markets look forward. And so if you look at the last three recessions, the markets turned around before the economy did. What I'm trying to say is, We can look at the markets as a sign that we will be emerging from this. Eventually, the markets will show us the direction that we're going, but we are certainly not there yet. There are additional rate hikes planned for later in the year. Of course, that could change, but that's what the Federal Reserve is telegraphing right now. So who would you say are the winners and the big losers of the Fed hiking the interest rate? So I think it all comes down to whether you are a borrower or whether you are a saver. Well, borrowers are losers. Well, some of them are losers. If you're trying to buy a home right now, you're fighting mortgage rates that are over 5%. They're actually about 5 and 3 quarters percent on a 30-year fixed rate loan. Just compare that to where they were at this time last year, which was a little under 3%, and recognize it's not just the mortgage rates. It's the fact that mortgage rates are piling onto these inflated home prices. So people who want to buy a home, losers. People who have high interest rate revolving debt on a credit card. You've got debt on a credit card that you haven't paid off. The average credit card interest rate before the Fed hike was about 16%. It's going up to 18% very quickly, and it will continue to rise with each successive rate hike. People who were investing have not done well with these rate hikes. There's an old saying don't fight the Fed. And and we're seeing evidence of that right now. Savers will do a little bit better in these markets. If you have been thinking, I am getting no money on my savings, that's going to start to slowly turn around. And now is not such a bad time to start shopping around for a high interest rate savings account if you want to make a little bit of money on your emergency cushion or you want to just park a little chunk of cash that you know will be worth a little bit more money tomorrow than it was today. As far as trying to influence that entire picture, I mean, people are always saying, what can I do? What can I do in this situation to make my financial life better? If your credit's not pristine, 
it's a really good time to work on that because you're going to get the benefit of the lower of the higher interest rates as this curve goes on. Work on your credit means pull your credit score, see where it is. Credit scores are run in a range up to 850. Anything over about 760 is good. But if you're not there, pay all your bills on time. You can have debt as long as you pay your bills on time. Make sure that you are not using about more than 30% of the capacity that you have on those credit cards. Don't shop for cards that you really don't need. And Contrary to popular belief, don't close cards that you're not using because that actually hurts something called your credit utilization, which is an important component of your score. But it is something that takes a little bit of time to move up and move down, but it's very, very possible. Just a couple of other short pieces of news that I thought you'd enjoy, Soledad. First, the parent of Tony the Tiger, Kellogg's, announced that it would be splitting into three separate companies this week. One is going to focus on cereal. One is on plant-based foods. One on snacks. And this is all about the snacks. And as somebody who enjoys your snacks, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to point out that snacks are truly leading the way. Snacks are the things that have greater value on the market. So when we is look that because at because they cost so little to produce. They put them in air-puffed bags and they can charge you an arm and a leg when you go into a convenience store. That's part of it. But I also think if somebody were to take a shot of this studio right now, they would see we have many snacks all over the place and we are never without our snacks. Americans are snackers. If you look at what happened with the spinoff of Mondelez from Heinz Craft, Mondelez, the snack food company, has a much higher market value these days. What do they make? I don't know. know, I'm sure I know the snack, but I don't know the company. They are responsible for your Oreos. Oh. And I, I, you know, I don't know if you've tried the birthday cake Oreos or the mint Oreos or one of the millions of line extensions that they have managed to spin out, but lots of money in those cookies. Last thing, if you haven't received your tax refund, you're not the only one. The IRS started the year with 8 million returns that it hadn't processed. It was so excited to announce earlier this week that it actually cleared last year's backlog. But now they have to turn to many of the returns that came in this year. And no surprise, they're behind. One tip, most of those returns that haven't been processed are paper returns. Just another reason to file electronically. That's a good point, Jean. So we are in this constant news swirl of screaming headlines about inflation and the market dropping and the potential of a recession coming at some point in the future. And as individuals, it is really hard for all of us to stay firm in our investment strategies. Every day, many of us, I know I do, experience doubt. And it it doesn't help that as soon as things become chaotic, people raise their voices to a fever pitch and, and start talking about the fact that what you have been doing just isn't working anymore. This is something we've been hearing a lot about when it comes to the 60-40 portfolio, which is a a mix of 60% equities, 40% bonds. It's what traditionally pension funds have relied upon. So today we have with us Edelman Financial Engines Chief Investment Officer Christopher Jones to give us some perspective. Chris's team is responsible 
for investment analysis and financial research and portfolio management. He's also an author and an investor rights advocate. And Chris, I just have to ask point blank, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? Short answer is no, it is not dead. This notion that the 60-40 portfolio is dead is something you hear periodically come up in the financial press every few years, typically in a period of market volatility like we're experiencing right now. The basic criticism comes from a few different points. The one that you hear most often is that a mix of equities and fixed income isn't going to deliver what it's delivered over the last 75 years of history. And people will point to things like, well, in the last quarter, bonds and stocks were highly correlated. They were moving down together. So therefore, diversification doesn't work anymore. But that's a really naive point of view. When you look over longer time periods, there are periods of time where correlations will sync up and there are periods of time where they won't. And the idea of a 60-40 portfolio is simply that a broad mix of equity exposure and bond exposure provides attractive long-term expected returns and a reasonable level of risk mitigation. That is still very much true today. Despite what we saw in Q1, over the long run, a portfolio structured that way is likely to generate positive returns in the long run. Now, that doesn't mean that a 60-40 portfolio is right for everybody, though. So then how do you know if it's right for you or, or who is it not right for? Well, the main thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about where you want to be in terms of a portfolio is what is your preference for risk? If you are young and early in your career, let's say in your 20s or 30s, and you've got a long career in front of you, most people in that situation would actually want to have higher equity exposure than a 60-40 mix. They might want to be 80% equities or even 100% equities because the benefits of that longer term, higher expected growth is going to play out over 40 or 50 years. And in that situation, you can take a little more risk. You're not as worried about the downside and you can benefit from those long-run expected returns. If you are five years away from retirement, you might not feel the same way. You might want to be more conservative in terms of the way that you invest. And there's a whole large variety of personal circumstances that can affect both your tolerance for risk and your ability to actually take on that risk and be comfortable with that level of risk. And this is why often it makes sense to talk with a professional who can help figure out where you want to be on that spectrum and make sure that you have a portfolio that's aligned with your goals and objectives. So what are some of the circumstances where a 60-40 portfolio might not actually be appropriate? Well, it's a great question. One example that, that comes to mind is a situation where maybe you've managed to accumulate a significant amount of your financial wealth in a single security. You know, Maybe you happen to work for a company that's had a really good run or you, uh, you work for a company that went public or something like that, and all of a sudden you find yourself with a significant amount of money, but it's tied up in, in one security, maybe for a, a lengthy period of time. In those situations, a 60-40 portfolio might not be appropriate at all, given your facts and circumstances. So it, it depends on a lot of things, obviously. It depends on your time horizon and your preference for risk and your tax situation and so forth. But that can be an example of where you would want to build a more customized allocation that takes into consideration the risk associated with that position and tries to mitigate that as best possible by investing in things that are less correlated with that security. 
And that can lead you to a portfolio that might be very different from a typical 60-40 mix. What you just said about taking less risk as you get older, I think that was the basis for the rule of thumb, that if you just take 100 and you subtract your age, that's about the amount of money that you should have in stocks with the rest in bonds. But what I've heard more recently as we're living longer is now it's 110 minus your age. We've got to take more risk because we are going to likely retire a little bit later and need the money to last a little bit longer. Do rules of thumb like this work? I think rules of thumb can be a helpful starting point. They can give you a little bit of guidance as to where you might want to start thinking about the, the problem. But rules of thumb are sort of an average answer that can be appropriate for some people. But for many folks, they can lead you astray. One of the biggest challenges, I think, in investing is dealing with all of the complexity of multiple different types of goals. Maybe you have a spouse or partner that has assets of their own. How do you put all this together and how do you put it into a household portfolio that makes sense and is aligned with your goals and interests? And that's not a trivial task. That is not something that, that most people will find easy to do, particularly as you get older and you've accumulated some financial wealth and you've got all of these complexities that are facing you. Rules of thumb can be a helpful starting point, but generally speaking, particularly as you get older, you're going to want to talk to somebody who can ask the right questions and make sure you're thinking about all those contingencies. I feel like every time someone gives a rule of thumb, there's like a little asterisk and 10 reasons why this rule of thumb should not apply to you. So do not use it. When we look at portfolio construction to it, you know, we used to talk about asset allocation with stocks and bonds and cash. And now maybe there's real estate, maybe there's gold or other precious metals. Maybe there are other alternative asset classes how does all of that fit into your calculation? One of the things that people don't often recognize is when you own a portfolio of individual stocks and bonds, let's say the stocks in the S&P 500, for example, you actually own a lot of other things. Public companies own real estate. They own commodities. They own things like gold. If you buy a gold mining company, they own a lot of gold. If you buy an oil company, they own a lot of oil reserves. Companies like Walmart, for example, own a tremendous amount of commercial real estate. So when you buy a broad-based portfolio of stocks and bonds, you're actually getting a lot of so-called alternative exposures. And that's, generally speaking, why most people should not be loading up in these alternative asset classes. It really doesn't make sense to have a high proportion of your assets invested in things like commodities or direct real estate or private instruments and so forth. It's okay to have some of that exposure in your portfolio and use it like a spice, but you don't want to think of that as the main course. The main course that you want to have exposure to is the broad equity and fixed income markets. Those are the things that are going to drive those long-term expected returns that you're trying to achieve. What role does international investments play in portfolio construction these days as you are modeling out portfolios for the clients of Edelman Financial Engines? How do you think about it? Well, international exposure is a critical part of a diversified portfolio. And the reasons for that is that a lot of the economic activity that occurs around the world is occurring outside of the United States. And if you think about the big brand name companies that you hear about all the time, the Apples, the, the Ford, the Microsofts, the, you know, the Walmarts of the world, 
they're receiving a lot of their revenues from outside of the United States borders. They do a lot of business internationally. And so it's crucial that you have exposure to that part of the economic activity. If you only invest in the United States, you're missing out on roughly half of the economic activity that goes on around the world. And that's simply not something that's to your advantage. And so the benefit of having international exposure is that those other markets don't always move in lockstep with what's going on in the US. And that means that you can actually lower the risk of your portfolio without giving up any of that expected return by having diversification into those international markets. Can we talk about taxes? How do you think about taxes when you're constructing your portfolio? I never even thought about my tax implications. To me, that always came sort of like later at the end when you, whatever you decide to do, then you sort of calculate like, oh, and here's how we're going to get hit by taxes. How do you think about it in the front end while you're trying to figure out your portfolio? Well, the short answer with taxes is that it depends on your situation quite a bit. If you are relatively low income, taxes and the taxation of the returns that you see in your portfolio are not going to be that big of a deal for you. But if you happen to have accumulated wealth and you happen to be in a relatively high income bracket, particularly if you live in a state like California, for example, that has relatively high income tax rates, taxes are actually a major factor when you think about the accumulation of wealth over time. So you want to focus on what are the things that are going to improve my after-tax return. The only money you get to keep is the money you get to keep after you've paid your taxes to the federal government and to the state that you live in. And so if you think about the accumulation of wealth, it really does make a big difference how tax efficient your investing strategy is. People often miss that. They see the balance going up in their brokerage account, but they don't think about the fact often, well, if I were to try to spend that money first, I've got to write a big check to the government to pay off all of those accumulated capital gains. So the challenge with tax-efficient investing is how do you invest in such a way where your after-tax returns are as big as they can be? I think one of the confusing things, at least it's confusing for me, about going through any sort of a period of, of big ups or downs in the market is that you just don't know if your portfolio is still in whack or if it's gotten out of whack. When do we need to look at that? How often do we look at it? Should we be looking at it all the time? And how do we make sure that we're just doing the right thing rather than trying to time the market with these sort of movements? To start with, trying to time the market is a terrible idea. Even the most educated and experienced professionals have a really, really hard time getting that right. So I would not recommend trying to time the market to anyone. It's much more likely to damage your performance than it is to enhance your performance. Now, that said, as we go through periods, particularly in volatile periods like we're going through right now, portfolios can move around. Different parts of your portfolio can be worth more or less. And that calls into the question, well, when should you be thinking about realigning or rebalancing your portfolio back to a spot that makes sense? And of course, that's a function of where you want to be on the risk spectrum. And it's also a function of how likely you are to be needing access to that money. So there's no simple answer to it. But generally speaking, I would suggest that people look at their portfolio allocation at least a couple of times a year and sort of evaluate whether or not some adjustments might be in order. And those adjustments should generally be in the sense of trying to get back to a risk level that you are comfortable with. If we go through a big period of up markets, 
Maybe your portfolio has become a little bit too aggressive and you want to dial that back down. Same thing can happen when markets go down. Perhaps you don't have the amount of equity exposure that you'd really like to have in the long run, and it might be time to top that back up a bit. All that information really just says talk to someone. <laughs> it's so complicated. It's so complicated. It I mean, is, really, I admire people who try to do it on their own because I think they I think they probably have a better grasp of their money and, and how it's working for them or not working for them than, than those of us who just sort of try to work with the profession. You know, I think there's a real... I think there's a real intelligence usually behind it. But boy, if you're trying to calculate your taxes and what's going to happen in your portfolio at the time that you want to remove it from your portfolio, that's high level math. I think. It, it, it is. It, it's kind of absurd how complicated things have become for the average adult in, in the United States. I mean, the number of decisions that we expect people to make, particularly as they approach that retirement horizon, is, is just crazy. Even for people who have been steeped in it, like myself, for 30 years. It's really, really complicated. Well, where's the line, I guess, is my question, between market timing and and just systematic rebalancing? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit blurry because if you think about, you know, rebalancing to, say, a fixed proportion like 60-40, you're selling winners and you're buying losers. In some sense, that's like a contrarian strategy. You're sort of doing the opposite of what the market is doing. And so... It's an interesting question, actually. What is the most optimal rebalancing strategy? It's generally not going back to exactly the same spot you were, irrespective of what happened in the market. So we we generally believe that as markets move up or down, that's saying something about the global risk preferences of all investors. And so if we're in a market where everybody's bidding up the prices of equities, in general, that means that people are going to want to own a little bit more equities than they would have in had that not happened, and vice versa is also true. So there's not a simple one-size-fits-all answer, particularly when you fold in the, the impact of taxes, because you can harvest losses and do things like that as well. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. We are hopeful that you'll join us again. We've got to take a quick break, but we will be right back. Wondering if market volatility is the new normal? Are you looking to validate the financial decisions you've made? Or find out if there's anything else you could be doing? A conversation with an Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner may give you peace of mind, no matter what's affecting the market. You'll get a valuable expert second opinion and a fresh perspective on your wealth planning. And you'll get insight into other opportunities available to you. Call Edelman Financial Engines now at 833-PLAN-EFE or visit edelmanfinancialengines.com for your complimentary retirement review and financial plan. That's 833-PLAN-EFE. Call by Tuesday at 10 p.m. and take advantage of this limited-time offer. An $800 value, free. That's 833-PLAN-EFE. Or visit edelmanfinancialengines.com. You didn't come this far to only come this far. We're back with you on Everyday Wealth. Thanks for joining us. Week to week, we walk through different topics that people need to consider when it comes to what Jean loves to call our personal (laughs) economies. Uh, But of course, building wealth is a process, and we thought it might be helpful if we get a little bit tactical and very strategic on those things that maybe can get in the way of building wealth. Joining our conversation is Brian Leslie. He's an Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Plan. He's from Omaha, Nebraska. Brian, always nice to see you. 
Hello, Soledad. Thanks for having me. Jeans, good to see you. Good to see you too, Brian. I, I know we're going to break down these obstacles, but I always feel like they could just come under the big category called life. I mean, life just, just gets in the way. Life just throws you things that you don't expect, which is one of the reasons I think it's helpful to have another person, you know, a financial advisor in the picture to help you stay on course. I I would imagine that that is something that you feel is a, a really big part of your job. Without a doubt, life happens. There's so many demands on our time and, you know, money as well. There's only so much of it to go around. And when you're younger, you have young kids in the house and it's like, well, I'll wait until they're in school and I have a little bit extra cash flow. Then all of a sudden they're in school and activities and travel dance and travel baseball and travel football and you don't have it. And next thing you know, they're graduating, you're 50 and you're like, where's my retirement savings? And now it's time to play catch up. What do the people tell you when you have a kid? Like the days are slow, but the years are fast. Like every day you're like, oh my God, another day. Uh, but then you look up and that kid is 10 and then they're 15 and then they're heading off to college and you're helping them pack their stuff. So I think it's really true. And it's why I, I use the word strategic in your introduction, right? You really have to be strategic where you're doing something consistently over time, regardless of whether you're juggling two-year-olds or you're dealing with some issue with your four-year-old, you have to consistently have a plan and a strategy. Yeah, I I think it would be helpful to identify what the obstacles are. There are common obstacles. I know that you see them all the time. And by the way, if you don't have somebody in your life who can help you identify and work through these obstacles, personally, I think it's a good idea. You can always work with one of the planners from Edelman Financial Engines by calling 833-PLAN-EFE or visiting planefe.com. But Brian, can you just walk us through, I mean, what are these most common roadblocks? Well, the first one is just procrastination, right? We delay. The second is just spending habits and kind of accounting for where each dollar is going. Money is kind of like water. Like it'll always find a crack. If you don't intentionally save, you will spend that dollar somewhere else on something that you probably don't need. I do it all the time. We always tell clients, you got to save first. You got to pay yourself first. And if you can automate it to where it's just happening without you even knowing it, I think that's the best way to help the spending habits. Because once you pay yourself, what if the rest of the money goes to, you don't have to spend all that much time tracking down to the pennies. You are so right, though, about money being like water. It's not just like water these days. It's like a gusher because it is so invisible. We just swipe, 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 click, tap, dip, swipe. And If you don't stop to pay attention, this is what we do in our finance fix program at Her Money. We call it getting dirty with your data. We force people to (laughs) slow down a little bit and just look at where their money is going. And everybody has a revelation. I, I do think it's important to do it at least once. Two words come to mind when you were speaking. Amazon prime. Mm. Like the, <laughs> the fact that we can just think of something that we need or we want, we pull out our phone and next thing you know, we've ordered it. Before Amazon prime, we used to put it on like our, our shopping list. And there was some separation of time between when we thought we needed it and when we would actually purchase it. We had some time to kind of regulate ourselves and say, okay, do we really need that? 
with Amazon Prime, I don't know if that's happening anymore, at least not in my house. Can I add a couple other words? DoorDash and Uber if you live in the city. You know, my kids who, you know, I want them to have Uber because often I need them to be sort of safely brought back and forth. But boy, it's just very easy to book Ubers and not even necessarily look at the cost of that Uber. And that stuff adds up fast. So I think you're right. I think it's actually great advice to get people to to dig into that first. Well, bringing this back to like some of these obstacles that are keeping us from building wealth I'm not a huge fan of budgeting, identifying exactly what my expenses are down to the penny on certain items. Really? I'm surprised by that. I would have thought you'd be exactly the opposite and be like, budget, 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 know where you're spending every dime. It's excruciating. I hate it. And actually, I don't I don't know if it does all that good because it always changes, right? So as we think about building wealth, I don't like tracking all these small expenses and where the money's going. I would rather just pay myself first. And then what is left over after I've saved and invested and what it goes to, I don't care. doesn't make a difference. As long as I'm paying myself first is the key thing. I think a lot of people get caught up in all of these subscriptions. Everybody is asking you to subscribe to everything these days, streaming services, shopping services. And if you go through, at one point, there was this astonishing statistic that the average household has 24 subscriptions. 24. I don't need all of these things. But the other obstacle that's standing in our way, number three of the four right now, Brian, is inflation. And I can't control that. Without a doubt. I mean, it's obviously hitting all of us straight in the face right at the moment. You know, as you think about where you're allocating your dollars, it's not just about saving. I mean, if you're saving and putting it into a savings account that's making less than 1% right now, that's not helping you fight inflation. You have to be putting and allocating these dollars into investments that are expected to keep pace and outpace inflation. Historically, these stocks have been one of the best hedges against inflation because the rate of return has historically been in excess of what inflation is average. So what is the solution? When you look at the framework for where your money should be, in this inflationary environment? What are the buckets? Just allocating dollars depending on when you're going to use them. So for example, if it's money you plan on using in the next two years, three years, probably just need to keep it in cash or savings or CDs, things that you know what the value are going to be when when you need it. On the other hand, if it's something that you're not going to need for maybe five years or 10 years down the road, you can take on a little bit of risk. And it's those risk assets that you have to take on to try to get rates of return that over and exceed inflation. Um, but but there's a price, and that price is having to deal with the, the volatility and the fluctuations, and, and obviously we're seeing that right now. We have been talking about building wealth and really the four main obstacles that can get in the way. We've covered three of them, procrastination, spending habits, and dealing with inflation. And now let's dive into the fourth, which is taxes. Joining our conversation is Brian Leslie, an Edelman Financial Engines wealth planner. He's from Omaha, Nebraska. Brian, nice to have you back. Let's talk about taxes as an obstacle. I'm just going to say, listen, I'm happy to pay taxes. Like I want to pay what I need to pay. But at the same time, I want to work very hard to see if I can minimize my tax bill in, in every which way that is legal. How do you work around that for people who are trying to minimize taxes and keep building their wealth? 
taxes are certainly a drag on the wealth that you build, whether that come from things as obvious as income taxes or taxes on capital gains, but also as you withdraw from like retirement accounts and how those are taxed. That's probably one of the things that I see overlooked the most from clients is just understanding what accounts they're adding to, why they're adding to them, and then what it's going to look like on the back end as they start to take money from them. So what I hear you saying is that this is not something that you address with your tax planner at tax time. I mean, you're talking about (laughs) a process over not just years, but decades as you're thinking about, well, do I put money into this Roth? Or do I put money into a traditional retirement account? Or do I put money into a taxable brokerage account? It has to do with as you're accumulating wealth, not just as you're pulling wealth out for retirement. Let me give you a couple of examples. As you get into retirement, if all you've done is been adding to your 401k with pre-tax dollars, well, you get into retirement and you want to start using some of that money and using it to live off of. The problem is every dollar that comes out of that pre-tax account is taxed as ordinary income. And there's the obvious, which is the income tax consequences, but then there's all these auxiliary tax consequences that come along as well. So for example, Social Security. If your only income is Social Security, you may not have to pay taxes on it at all. But the more income you have, which could come from retirement accounts, it now starts to cause some of your Social Security to become taxable. Medicare is another example. The premiums that you have to pay in retirement are dependent upon what your income level is. So the higher income that you have, the more you may have to pay for Medicare premiums. So you need to be cognizant of what are the tax ramifications as I start to withdraw from these accounts. And you want to make sure that you know where these levels are at. That way you don't end up, say, taking an extra $5 and you cross above that threshold. Now, all of a sudden, you're paying a couple of thousand dollars extra a year in Medicare premiums. When we talk about different sorts of investments that we are stockpiling for the future, different kinds of assets have different kinds of tax burdens. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so there's different taxes on different assets, but it also depends on what type of accounts you own those assets in. So if you're just holding stocks and bonds in a brokerage account, a lot of folks don't realize that the tax treatment is different. For example, bonds pay interest, and interest is taxed as ordinary income. Capital gains from a stock or qualified dividends are taxed at lower tax rates than what ordinary income is. And so you need to know what those different levels are and where you fall. I'm listening to all of this and I'm thinking, okay, I I need help. And fortunately, we have help. What is EFE's methodology on tax efficiency? First thing I would say is it's not just about the taxes. It's understanding that taxes are a drag on your wealth. The ultimate goal here is to protect and grow your wealth. So number one, as you're choosing investments, you need to know what the different tax consequences are for those particular investments. If your portfolio and your situation calls for holding bonds, maybe you would like to hold those in more tax-efficient vehicles like an IRA or a 401k. On the other hand, if it's stocks where you get preferential tax treatment and lower tax rates, 
maybe you'll hold those in your taxable or your brokerage account. The other thing I would say for those folks that are in or near retirement, it's understanding what the tax ramifications are going to be as they start to draw from these different accounts. Usually at the end of the year or at the very beginning of the year, I will be talking to my clients that are planning on using their portfolio to live off of like, hey, how much do you expect to need this year? That way we can put together a strategy for how much we're going to withdraw from each of these different buckets to make sure they're not causing any unnecessary tax consequences and getting surprised by by any of these items. This is also really important when it comes to your social security strategy, right, Brian? Like figuring out where you're going to pull money from if you want to delay claiming Social Security in order to boost your monthly check, which people should want to do in the vast majority of situations. you got to look at where am I going to get this money to live on so that I can let my Social Security grow by 8% a year. That's a huge point. Oftentimes, we recommend folks try to push out their Social Security That doesn't necessarily mean we're trying to encourage them to retire later. It just means we will be withdrawing from their portfolio to bridge the gap. As we think about taxes specifically in this discussion, every dollar that you get from your portfolio, let's say it's from an IRA or 401k that's pre-tax, that's a dollar of income. But if you get a dollar from Social Security, you're only having to report at the maximum 85 cents of income. In other words, you get a dollar from Social Security, but only 85 cents shows up on your tax return as income. I think we should get into the integrated wealth plan. As my dad would like to say, there is not a snowball's chance in hell that you're going to magically wake up at the age of 65 having not been completely intentional and strategic and somehow have set it up to work perfectly for you, where you've been able to avoid taxes and increase your wealth by making sure you're paying taxes on those things that you owe and those things that you actually don't owe taxes on, you're not overpaying or accidentally paying, and you're actually able to shunt that back into your wealth. So then let's talk about what an integrated, strategic, intentional plan actually looks like. As you think about a plan, I think it involves everything from, am I saving enough? Do I have enough accumulated? To, am I putting this in the right type of investment? Am I putting this in the right type of investment account? What are the tax ramifications? Do I have it growing at the pace that I need it to grow at? But it's not just about building and growing it. It's also about protecting it, which means like, what are the curveballs life could throw at us? There's things like death and we get life insurance to protect our family or our dependents. But there's also things like long-term care insurance because the cost there is getting astronomical. Right now, I think it's about a hundred grand a year for the average stay in a long-term care facility. And so you got to plan for those types of expenses. The last thing I would say is like, this stuff isn't siloed. You really need to have somebody looking over the entire picture to make sure everything's working together and is coordinated. And so I think that's, that's the key thing that I would say about, you know, what is an integrated wealth plan? Well, it's, it's tying all these things together because they are tied together. These things are not siloed. Brian Leslie, always nice to talk to you, Brian. Thank you so much. That is our show for today. If you've got a question you'd like us to answer or maybe a topic you'd like us to discuss, just visit us at planefe.com. You can go right to the Everyday Wealth page. If you missed last week's show, you can download the podcast right there or anywhere that you get your favorite podcasts. 
And we would like to thank Christopher Jones and Brian Leslie with Edelman Financial Engines for being with us this week and for all the great insights they've shared. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Have a great week. What if volatility is the new normal? Partner with an experienced Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner to align your wealth strategy to your goals. Call today and get your $800 financial plan for free. Call 833-PLAN-EFE and take advantage of this limited time offer. Offer good until Tuesday at 10 p.m. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.